Chapter Twenty Five, Section Two of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One, by Karl Marx. Translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Friedrich Engels. Part Seven: The Accumulation of Capital, Chapter Twenty Five: The General Law of Capitalist Accumulation, Section Two: Relative Diminution of the Variable Part of Capital Simultaneously with the Progress of Accumulation, and of the Concentration that Accompanies It. According to the economists themselves, it is neither the actual extent of social wealth, nor the magnitude of the capital already functioning, that leads to a rise of wages, but only the constant growth of accumulation and the degree of the rapidity of that growth. Adam Smith, Book One, Chapter Eight. So far, we have only considered one special phase of this process, that in which the increase of capital occurs along with a constant technical composition of capital. But the process goes beyond this phase. Once given the general basis of the capitalistic system, then in the course of accumulation, a point is reached at which the development of the productivity of social labor becomes the most powerful lever of accumulation. The same cause, says Adam Smith, which raises the wages of labor, the increase of stock, tends to increase its productive powers and to make a smaller quantity of labor produce a greater quantity of work. Apart from natural conditions such as fertility of soil, etc., and from the skill of independent and isolated producers, shown rather qualitatively in the goodness than quantitatively in the mass of their products, the degree of productivity of labor in a given society is expressed in a relative extent of the means of production that one laborer during a given time, with the same tension of labor power, turns into products. The mass of the means of production which he thus transforms increases with the productiveness of his labor, but those means of production play a double part. The increase of some is a consequence, that of the others a condition of the increasing productivity of labor. For example, with the division of labor and manufacture, and with the use of machinery, more raw material is worked up in the same time. And therefore, a greater mass of raw material and auxiliary substances enter into the labor process. That is the consequence of the increasing productivity of labor. On the other hand, the mass of machinery, beasts of burden, mineral manures, drain pipes, etc., is a condition of the increasing productivity of labor. So also is it with the means of production concentrated in buildings, furnaces, means of transport, etc. But whether condition or consequence, the growing extent of the means of production, as compared with the labor power incorporated with them, is an expression of the growing productiveness of labor. The increase of the latter appears, therefore, in the diminution of the mass of labor in proportion to the mass of means of production moved by it, or in the diminution of the subjective factor of the labor process, as compared with the objective factor. This change in the technical composition of capital. This growth in the mass of the means of production, as compared with the mass of the labor power that vivifies them, is reflected again in its value composition by the increase of the constant constituent of capital at the expense of its variable constituent. There may be, for example, originally fifty percent of a capital laid out in means of production, and fifty percent in labor power, 
later on, with the development of the productivity of labor, 80% in means of production, 20% in labor power, and so on. This law of the progressive increase in constant capital, in proportion to the variable, is confirmed at every step, as already shown, by the comparative analysis of the prices of commodities, whether we compare different economic epochs or different nations in the same epoch. The relative magnitude of the element of price, which represents the value of the means of production only, or the constant part of capital consumed, is indirect, the relative magnitude of the other element of price that pays labor, the variable part of capital, is in inverse proportion to the advance of accumulation. This diminution in the variable part of capital, as compared with the constant, or the altered value composition of the capital, however, only shows approximately the change in the composition of its material constituents. If, for example, the capital value employed today in spinning is seven-eighths constant and one-eighth variable, whilst at the beginning of the eighteenth century it was one-half constant and one-half variable, on the other hand, the mass of raw material, instruments of labor, etc., that a certain quantity of spinning labor consumes productively today, is many hundred times greater than at the beginning of the eighteenth century. The reason is simply that, with the increasing productivity of labor, not only does the mass of the means of production consumed by it increase, but their value compared with their mass diminishes. Their value, therefore, rises absolutely, but not in proportion to their mass. The increase of the difference between constant and variable capital is, therefore, much less than that of the difference between the mass of the means of production, into which the constant, and the mass of the labor-power, into which the variable, capital, is converted. The former difference increases with the latter, but in a smaller degree. But if the process of accumulation lessens the relative magnitude of the variable part of capital, it by no means, in doing this, excludes the possibility of a rise in its absolute magnitude. Suppose that a capital value at first is divided into fifty percent of constant and fifty percent of variable capital, later into eighty percent of constant and twenty percent of variable. If in the meantime the original capital, say six thousand pounds, has increased to eighteen thousand pounds, its variable constituent has also increased. It was three thousand pounds, it is now three thousand six hundred pounds. But whereas formerly an increase of capital by twenty percent would have sufficed to raise the demand for labor by twenty percent, now this latter rise requires a tripling of the original capital. In part four it was shown how the development of the productiveness of social labor presupposes cooperation on a large scale, how it is only upon this supposition that division and combination of labor can be organized, and the means of production economized by concentration on a vast scale, how instruments of labor which, from their very nature, are only fit for use in common, such as a system of machinery, can be called into being, how huge natural forces can be pressed into the service of production, and how the transformation can be effected of the process of production into a technological application of science. On the basis of the production of commodities, where the means of production are the property of private persons, and where the artisan therefore either produces commodities, isolated from and independent of others, or sells his labor-power as a commodity, because he lacks the means for independent industry, cooperation on a large scale can realize itself only in the increase of individual capitals, only in proportion as the means of social production and the means of subsistence are transformed into the private property of capitalists. 
the basis of the production of commodities can admit of production on a large scale in the capitalistic form alone a certain accumulation of capital in the hands of individual producers of commodities forms therefore the necessary preliminary of the specifically capitalist mode of production we had therefore to assume that this occurs during the transition from handicraft to capitalistic industry it may be called primitive accumulation because it is the historic basis instead of the historic result of specifically capitalist production how it itself originates we need not here inquire as yet it is enough that it forms the starting point but all methods for raising the social productive power of labor that are developed on this basis are at the same time methods for the increased production of surplus value or surplus product which in its turn is the formative element of accumulation they are therefore at the same time methods of the production of capital by capital or methods of its accelerated accumulation the continual retransformation of surplus value into capital now appears in the shape of the increasing magnitude of the capital that enters into the process of production this in turn is the basis of an extended scale of production of the methods for raising the productive power of labor that accompany it and of accelerated production of surplus value if therefore a certain degree of accumulation of capital appears as a condition of the specifically capitalist mode of production the latter causes conversely an accelerated accumulation of capital with the accumulation of capital therefore the specifically capitalist mode of production develops and with the capitalist mode of production the accumulation of capital both these economic factors bring about in the compound ratio of the impulses they reciprocally give one another that change in the technical composition of capital by which the variable constituent becomes always smaller and smaller as compared with the constant every individual capital is a larger or smaller concentration of means of production with a corresponding command over a larger or smaller labor army every accumulation becomes the means of new accumulation with the increasing mass of wealth which functions as capital accumulation increases the concentration of that wealth in the hands of individual capitalists and thereby widens the basis of production on a large scale and of the specific methods of capitalistic production the growth of social capital is affected by the growth of many individual capitals all other circumstances remaining the same individual capitals and with them the concentration of the means of production increase in such proportion as they form aliquot parts of the total social capital at the same time portions of the original capitals disengage themselves and function as new independent capitals besides other causes the division of property within capitalist families plays a great part in this with the accumulation of capital therefore the number of capitalists grows to a greater or lesser extent two points characterize this kind of concentration which grows directly out of or rather is identical with accumulation first the increasing concentration of the social means of production in the hands of individual capitalists is other things remaining equal limited by the degree of increase of social wealth second the part of social capital domiciled in each particular sphere of production is divided among many capitalists who face one another as independent commodity producers competing with each other accumulation and the concentration accompanying it are therefore not only scattered over many points but the increase of each functioning capital is thwarted by the formation of new and the subdivision of old capitals
Accumulation, therefore, presents itself on the one hand as increasing concentration of the means of production, and of the command over labor, on the other as repulsion of many individual capitals, one from another. This splitting up of the total social capital into many individual capitals, or the repulsion of its fractions one from another, is counteracted by their attraction. This last does not mean that simple concentration of the means of production and of the command over labor, which is identical with accumulation. It is the concentration of capitals already formed, destruction of their individual independence, expropriation of capitalist by capitalist, transformation of many small into few large capitals. This process differs from the former in this, that it only presupposes a change in the distribution of capital already to hand, and functioning its field of action is therefore not limited by the absolute growth of social wealth, but by the absolute limits of accumulation. Capital grows in one place to a huge mass in a single hand, because it has in another place been lost by many. This is centralization proper, as distinct from accumulation and concentration. The laws of this centralization of capitals, or of the attraction of capital by capital, cannot be developed here. A brief hint at a few facts must suffice. The battle of competition is fought by cheapening of commodities. The cheapness of commodities demands, ceteris paribus, on the productiveness of labor, and this again on the scale of production. Therefore, the larger capitals beat the smaller. It will further be remembered that, with the development of the capitalist mode of production, there is an increase in the minimum amount of individual capital necessary to carry on a business under its normal conditions. The smaller capitals, therefore, crowd into spheres of production, which modern industry has only sporadically or incompletely got hold of. Here competition rages in direct proportion to the number, and in inverse proportion to the magnitudes, of the antagonistic capitals. It always ends in the ruin of many small capitalists, whose capital partly pass into the hands of their conquerors, partly vanish. Apart from this, with capitalist production, an altogether new force comes into play, the credit system, which in its first stages furtively creeps in as the humble assistant of accumulation, drawing into the hands of individual or associated capitalists, by invisible threads, the money resources which lie scattered, over the surface of society, in larger or smaller amounts. But it soon becomes a new and terrible weapon in the battle of competition, and is finally transformed into an enormous social mechanism for the centralization of capitals. Commensurately with the development of capitalist production and accumulation, there develop the two most powerful levers of centralization, competition and credit. At the same time, the progress of accumulation increases the material amenable to centralization, i.e., the individual capitalists, whilst the expansion of capital production creates, on the one hand, the social want, and, on the other, the technical means necessary for those immense industrial undertakings which require a previous centralization of capital for their accomplishment. Today, therefore, the force of attraction, drawing together individual capitals, and the tendency to centralization are stronger than ever before. But if the relative extension and energy of the movement toward centralization is determined, in a certain degree, by the magnitude of capitalist wealth and superiority of economic mechanism already attained, progress in centralization does not in any way depend upon a positive growth in the magnitude of social capital. 
and this is the specific difference between centralization and concentration, the latter being only another name for reproduction on an extended scale. Centralization may result from a mere change in the distribution of capitals already existing, from a simple alteration in the quantitative grouping of the component parts of social capital. Here capital can grow into a powerful mass in a single hand, because there it has been withdrawn from many individual hands. In any given branch of industry, centralization would reach its extreme limit if all the individual capitals invested in it were fused into a single capital. In a given society, the limit would be reached only when the entire social capital was united in the hands of either a single capitalist or a single capitalist company. Note in the fourth German edition. The latest English and American trusts are already striving to attain this goal by attempting to unite at least all the large-scale concerns in one branch of industry into one great joint stock company with a practical monopoly. Friedrich Engels. End note. Centralization completes the work of accumulation by enabling industrial capitalists to extend the scale of their operations. Whether this latter result is the consequence of accumulation or centralization, whether centralization is accomplished by the violent method of annexation, when certain capitals become such preponderant centers of attraction for others that they shatter the individual cohesion of the latter, and then draw the separate fragments to themselves, or whether the fusion of a number of capitals already formed or in process of formation takes place by the smoother process of organizing joint stock companies, the economic effect remains the same. Everywhere the increased scale of industrial establishments is the starting point for a more comprehensive organization of the collective work of many, for a wider development of their material motive forces. In other words, for the progressive transformation of isolated processes of production, carried on by customary methods, into processes of production socially combined and scientifically arranged. But accumulation, the gradual increase of capital by reproduction as it passes from the circular to the spiral form, is clearly a very slow procedure compared with centralization, which has only to change the quantitative groupings of the constituent parts of social capital. The world would still be without railways if it had to wait until accumulation had got a few individual capitalists far enough to be adequate for the construction of a railway. Centralization, on the contrary, accomplished this in the twinkling of an eye, by means of joint stock companies. And whilst centralization thus intensifies and accelerates the effects of accumulation, it simultaneously extends and speeds those revolutions in the technical composition of capital, which raise its constant portion at the expense of its variable portion, thus diminishing the relative demand for labor. The masses of capital fused together overnight by centralization reproduce and multiply as the others do, only more rapidly, thereby becoming new and powerful levers in social accumulation. Therefore, when we speak of the progress of social accumulation, we tacitly include, today, the effects of centralization. The additional capitals formed in the normal course of accumulation, see Chapter 24, Section 1, serve particularly as vehicles for the exploitation of new inventions and discoveries, and industrial improvements in general. But in time the old capital also reaches the moment of renewal from top to toe, when it sheds its skin and is reborn like the others in a perfected technical form, in which a smaller quantity of labor will suffice to set in motion a larger quantity of machinery and raw materials. 
The absolute reduction in the demand for labor which necessarily follows from this is obviously so much the greater the higher the degree in which the capitals undergoing this process of renewal are already massed together by virtue of the centralization movement. On the one hand, therefore, the additional capital formed in the course of accumulation attracts fewer and fewer laborers in proportion to its magnitude. On the other hand, the old capital periodically reproduced with change of composition repels more and more of the laborers formerly employed by it. End of chapter 25, section 2